Hello and welcome to the PPI podcast. My name is Colin Mortimer, and I am the director of the Center for New Liberalism here at PPI. This week, I had the opportunity to sit down with two special guests. First was an independent music venue owner who tells the story of just how badly this pandemic has affected his business. I feel like we all kind of have an idea that music venues have really not fared well during this pandemic, but to hear it from someone from a first-person perspective really paints a picture of just how grim the prospects are. Then I talked to Michael Mandel, the chief economic strategist here at PPI. He really goes into the weeds of just how bad things are, not only for music venue owners, but for brewers and alcohol manufacturers too, not because of the CARES Act, but because of a little known tax cut that is due to expire at the end of December. I hope you'll excuse any occasional audio quality issues during this podcast. My voice in particular didn't come out great, but in the coming months, we're excited to announce that PPI will have its own professional podcast studio that will hopefully make these episodes sound better than ever. Thanks and enjoy the show. Today, I'm joined by Adam Hartke. He's the co-chair of the Advocacy Committee at the National Independent Venues Association, and he's the co-owner of a venue in Wichita, Kansas called Wave and Cotillion. Adam, welcome, and thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. So the conversation that I think we're going to have today is kind of about how the pandemic has affected venues. I feel like this is one that we have talked a lot about in the media. This is something that people keep bringing up. But I feel like based on uh, chatting with others and chatting with you before this episode, that people might not realize the full scale of the devastation of what has happened to venues during this pandemic. Yeah, sure. Um, this pandemic has been absolutely catastrophic to the independent venues in America. We were, many of us, if not all of us, were, were closed in mid-March, around the March 15th mark and have remained closed for nearly nine months now. We're coming up on the nine month mark here in a few days. Um, during this period of closure, we've had a reduction in revenue of over 95% across the board. Uh, and in many cases, we're experiencing negative revenue due to ticket refunds that we're incurring. Our, our employees have been furloughed. Um, a, a recent report shows about 95% of Venue employees have been furloughed or laid off. And we're looking at another six to nine months of full closure before we're able to reopen in any capacity. And it's likely when we do reopen, it's going to be in a partial capacity, reduced, reduced capacity or socially distanced shows, which will further hinder our capabilities of creating revenue to its full potential. Um, so we're, we're looking at a long recovery period, you know, once this, this crisis is behind us. And we're a little different than a lot of industries in that we rely on a national reopening to get back to business. The, the artists that we book in our venues tour nation. And given the inconsistencies on restrictions across the country, 
uh, and, and the amount of outbreaks and the fluctuations of those outbreaks across the country, it really puts us in a tough spot uh, because where our venues are here in Wichita, Kansas, you know, we're not going to get a show if Denver is not open and Kansas City is not open and Dallas isn't open uh, because there's just no way to efficiently route a tour, you know, to our venues. And that's going to be true across the country in any market. If, if we can't route five dates around that city, then we're not going to get any shows. And then not to mention it's, it's just not safe right now. So it's complex and it's, it's a lot that we're facing. I think it's important to, to highlight for listeners that your venues are different than the big venues. And when we're saying independent venues, this is a very specific kind of music venue that not only is a different size and a different kind of ownership model, but that the artists that you're hosting are different than the artists that are being hosted by bigger venues. Yeah, I mean, our, our membership at Neva ranges from, you know, very small 30 or 40 cap rooms up to, you know, large independently owned amphitheaters at 18,000 seats. But the majority of our members are in that, you know, 500 to 1,000 capacity range. Um, and it's it's venues where artists get their starts. You know, it's it's where the, the artists that are, are just setting out or, you know, just in the middle of their career, you know, are out touring the country, you know, on their on their way up or have leveled off and, and that's just where they are. Um, and yeah, I mean, we're independently owned. We're mom and pop businesses. We're, we're locally owned businesses across the country. Even the large, you know, 18,000 capacity spaces. We have one here in Kansas, the um, Providence Medical Amphitheater. Uh, it's a small, you know, it's a mom and pop ran business. Um, so those are much different in that, you know, the, the revenue that is generated at those spaces remains within the communities um, that, that host those events. And beyond that, you know, we're working independently to book shows. So, you know, it, it, it helps artists out to, to have the ability to go to different spaces and, and book separate shows in all of these venues. I think you touched on it a little bit there, and I want to dive a little bit more deeply into it, which is that I think we really can't think about venues as being in a vacuum. The money that goes into a venue just stays at the venue that they're really these fixtures of the community. Um, one in just like a cultural sense that, that communities will rally around their musical venues because they're a place where people can congregate and meet. And obviously we don't wanna lose them just for the, the cultural component of them. But there's also an economic benefit for them that like they, they create a whole ecosystem around them. Can you go a little bit more into, um, I guess the best way to put it is like, it's a multiplier, the multiplier of a music venue in the community. Yeah, I mean, it's been shown that for every dollar spent on a concert ticket, $12 is spent in the local community. And that's everything from, you know, neighboring bars and restaurants to hotels to Uber drivers um, to retail. Um, so it's it's a plethora of economic activity that we bring to our communities. And beyond that, we, we drive tourism in our communities. You know, for our, our two venues here in Wichita, we had visitors uh, from all 50 states last year. Um, we're one of the only industries in Kansas that can say we drove tourism from visitors from all 50 states. Um, it's, it's not something that most industries do, especially in, in states like Kansas. So, um, and then beyond that, the cultural impact is, is vast. I mean, we make it a priority, and this is a way that independent venues differ um, slightly than other models, is that we make it a priority to 
present shows that might be a little more financially risky, but have um, an artistic or cultural value that we think is important to, to showcase within our community. Um, so that that's something that that we curate and and hold in high regard. Um, and then also we we work with numerous local nonprofits and community organizations to make our our venue free for for them to come in and do fundraisers or, or other events um, just to give back to the community. So we host dozens and dozens and dozens of events every year for local community-based organizations that either have a cultural impact or, you know, help, uh, help with folks in need or, or various other, other things. So, you know, we're, we're very entwined uh, in, in our communities, both economically through tourism and culturally, for sure. I want to talk briefly also about um, what Congress has done um, to help businesses like yours. I mean, I think there is this idea with the CARES Act that happened last March, that it was supposed to kind of get people through the pandemic, and then obviously the pandemic lasted longer than people thought, and that the resources that Congress kind of put out expired or we used up more quickly than people expected. But it also, I think there was a perception that Congress was not going to fill the entire gap, that, um, for example, restaurants is the often cited example that have been decimated by this pandemic. At the very least, they get to still do takeout or outdoor dining or even socially distanced dining in, in many cities. There just like is not that same safety net for venues. It's kind of all or nothing in many respects. And the amount of funding and the amount of support that's really come from Congress and even in states just like hasn't been enough for you guys. Is that a fair impression? Yeah, totally. I mean, we were the first to close. We're going to be the last to reopen. Um, you can't do takeout for concerts. Our, our, our industry relies solely on large social gatherings. Um, you know, our business models are, are based on, you know, about an 80% uh, capacity, capacity ticket sale ratio. So when we're looking at these models, which we've done frequently, and we've done with some of the most brilliant minds across the country within our industry, you know, we look at things like streaming and, and reduced capacity shows and drive-in shows and, you know, all these different ideas that people have thought of trying to figure out a way to generate revenue, much like the restaurants have done with takeout. Um, and what we found is there's, it's, there's just nothing that can come close to covering the revenue gaps that we have. I mean, our, our venues are usually in very high rent districts and they're usually very large spaces, so our bills are real high. Um, just the square footage on our rent or mortgages are high. Um, the insurance that we have is astronomical because, you know, we have large social gatherings where people drink and, um, you know, there's all kinds of things that can happen. Um, and so, you know, we, we've been put in a very precarious spot. And, you know, the amount of relief that has come has been very short term. And when we're looking at, you know, up to nine months of closure now and another nine months ahead, you know, 2.5 times our payroll, you know, isn't going to get us there, you know, which which most of our venues got the PPP loans. And, you know, most of our our venues went for forgiveness as stipulated and that money was gone in early June and have since had no revenue. A lot of our venues got EIDL loans and again, 
that was, you know, maybe a month or two and then that money's gone and, you know, they're sitting there again. So, um, yeah, the, the, the assistance that's needed is something that's a little more long-term that's, you know, really going to focus in on the fact that we're at such a huge revenue loss. I mean, our, on average, our venues, 3, 000, over 3,000 venues across the country are, are sitting at 95% or more revenue loss. So, um, you know, it's, it's just catastrophic. I, I live in Washington, D.C., and I live down the road from U Street Music Hall that closed probably two months ago. And what they said was like, look, if you don't own your building, you're screwed because the rent is the thing that's going to be eating up your expenses more so than anything else. And that the only places that I've seen so far in D.C. are the bigger independent venues or the ones that are fortunate enough to own the, the building that they're located in. Do you have any estimate um, internally of how many independent venues you think will be able to survive this? You know, without federal assistance, uh, we did a survey and 90% of independent venues said that they would not survive without help. Jesus. Um, so it's, it's, it's just a, a, a terrible situation that's, that's looking horrible. And it's like, we can talk about the, the, the physical pandemic, the, the medical pandemic that's going on. And the hope is that once the medical pandemic is over, that we can kind of return to normal life. And I feel like that's internally what a lot of people are thinking. But a world where 90% of independent venues are closing, I mean, I feel like a lot of people's mental vision is like the first thing they're going to do after this pandemic ends is go to a, a standing room only concert with thousands of people packed in like cattle to watch a band. And in the reality you're describing, that's just like not gonna happen if there's not further action from Congress or states or localities for that matter. Yeah, it's it's gonna be a whole different world if, if there's no help. Um, we're gonna lose a lot of you know institutions, places that have been in operation for decades and decades. Um, you know, for example, the Cotillion here in Wichita, we've you know, we just celebrated two days ago the 60th anniversary of operation of continued operation since 1960 when it when it opened. Uh, this is the first time it's been closed for any period of time. Um, and there's stories like that all, all across the country. I mean, venues even older, you know, that have been in existence since the 20s or 30s that will no longer sustain, you know, um, if without help. So, yeah, I mean, there's there was a great quote by um, Congressman Hearn from Oklahoma that um, he's in the Tulsa area. And he said, one of the signals that this pandemic is behind us is going to a show at Kane's Ballroom and, you know, packing it in. And, you know, that will be one of the thing that, things that helps boost morale within the city and, and gets everybody feeling like that the crisis is behind us and everything's getting back to normal. But you know, think of the impact on morale and, and the overall, uh, you know, human consciousness. If those aren't there when this is over, you know, they're gone. And then all the businesses around them will dry up because, you know, they're, they're the anchors of their neighborhoods. So um, it, it has a, a very lasting impact. And then, you know, when you look down the line and, and you realize that, you know, many of the superstars of today would not be the superstars of today had they not had these small stages to perform on early on in their career. And then you look 10 years down the line and if 90% of these small stages are gone, what's that gonna do to the overall music industry and, and our creative output, you know, as America as a whole. And it's, it's just devastating. 
And there's a, there's other things that I think Congress has acted on inappropriately or, or not acted on. I think another one is excise taxes, which for most people that might be a vague concept, but there, there's an important factor in the tax code, which is that for every gallon of beer you produce or um, every certain quant quantity of liquor, that there's a fixed tax on it essentially. Um, and we talked before about this is like, that's something that you guys ultimately have to pass down on the customers. Um, that's something that affects your margins on alcohol. And for, and for these independent venues, I know that alcohol is a huge um, driver of revenue for these establishments, but that Congress in the end of December wants to, to raise it where um, I guess technically they want to let a tax cut that they expired, they, that they passed a few years ago expire. Yeah, I mean, when we look at recovery and what it's going to look like next year and the year after, you know, we, we it boggles my mind to think that we would have in, an increase on one of our biggest revenue line items. And, and when I say an increase, I mean an increase on the expense of that line item. So, um, you know, we, we try to break even on our tickets, right? And then we try to make our money back on the bar, on the alcohol we sell, on, on the beer and the liquor. And, and that's not for every show, that's for a lot of the shows. And so when, you know, looking at a recovery and then thinking that there will be a higher excise tax placed on, on one of our biggest products and then knowing we'll have to pass that expense down to the customers and in turn, you know, reduce our margins because there's only so much you can charge for a beer uh, before it just becomes ridiculous and people won't drink. Um, and so, you know, that's just counterproductive and will, you know, hinder our ability to recover and really slow down the economic recovery as a whole, you know, in our industry. And then even just broader than the venues, I mean, if you're you're looking at the manufacturers, and I feel like there's also this misconception that alcohol manufacturers have been doing really well in this pandemic with people buying beer and liquor, but on the flip side, bars and restaurants are not buying it because people aren't in those establishments. They've been shedding jobs and closing as well. And it's like, if I'm thinking logically about this, like obviously there's a, a side of this of like, we want Congress injecting aid into these businesses that are hurting so that when this pandemic ends, they can hit the ground running once more. But also we don't want to make it more difficult for them to reopen afterwards and in addition. And currently we just kind of have like a one, two of, there's not enough aid out there. And then Congress as of now is going to let these tax cuts expire that while we should put in perspective, don't raise a whole lot of revenue for Congress if they were to let expire. Yeah, right. I mean, some of our our you know close friends have you know small breweries which which would be affected by this. And you know, I mean, there's it, it's it's a very um, again a very counterproductive thing to a recovery period, which is what we're facing. I mean beyond our industry, everybody's hurting and everybody is in a, a position where there needs to be considerations given to what this looks like for the overall economy and the overall industries that have been so, you know, vastly impacted by this crisis. And, you know, yeah, the excise taxes is, is something that Congress needs to take a real hard look at and, and you know, consider extending the reduction because it's, it's going to help with the recovery of everybody, not just venues, but restaurants and bars and, you know, everybody. I mean, the, you, you go out 
you know, again, when you, when you go out at the end of this, you're going to want to go out, you're going to want to go out to eat, probably have a glass of wine or a beer or whatever you, you like and go to a show or whatever, you know, and to think that you're going to put the burden on the businesses that are already just completely decimated from this um, just doesn't make logical sense. And it, it's just honestly not fair. Do you think the odds are good that the tax cut will be extended? I think so. I mean, you know, I, I hope that, you know, Congress can see the reasoning behind this and, and understand the, the implications of what it would mean to let it expire and, you know, take action to help out, especially the mom and pop businesses all over the country. What we need as an industry is for the Save Our Sages Act to pass. And what has carried that is the support from our fans. You know, we've had over 2.1 million emails now in the Congress um, from our fans. And that's that grassroots effort has spoken volumes to Congress. And it's the reason why we're over, you know, 200 co-sponsors on the Save Our Stages Act uh, in the House and Senate and combined. And, you know, why we're, you know, being considered at the level we are. So, um, you know, I, I can't say it enough that, yes, please do support the initiatives of the local venues, but also, you know, if you, even if you've already done it, you know, please send another email, you know, saying that then you still need help because until there's a bill passed, you know, we, we haven't received help and, and you, you know, your voices are needed in this fight. So now I'm going to bring on uh, Michael Mandel kind of bring on the, the wonky perspective to this issue that we kind of talked about with Adam. Michael is my colleague at the Progressive Policy Institute. He's the chief economic strategist for PPI, which is a pretty lofty title. Michael, welcome. And I hope we'll have a, a pretty in the weeds discussion about all these tax issues and all these congressional issues that are currently going on. I'm hoping to get this discussion out of the weeds, Colin. I think our listeners like it when it's a little bit in the weeds. Like, I feel like there's that perfect level of like, wow, I learned something new. Uh Um, And like, also, I understand what they're saying. Good. Okay, let's go for it. So, I mean, one thing that Adam said earlier is that the the independent venues, that the, the small craft breweries, they're not these mega corporations. They don't, they can't offer stock to raise money during a, a pandemic, they um, have less of an ability to borrow money. They're, they're, they're small businesses. And you've done research on excise taxes specifically. And what me and Adam said was like, look, the, the conditions of the pandemic are bad enough. The fact that Congress is going to functionally raise taxes on us is only going to make matters worse. Are these taxes going to disproportionately affect these small venues and these small um, breweries and, and distilleries? Well, what we're talking about here is excise taxes, which are on particular goods, in this case, in this case, beer. Um, And what Congress had done is it had given reductions in excise taxes, bigger ones to small breweries. And so if these reductions expire, what's going to happen is the impact will fall more, more heavily on the smaller breweries, on the smaller which produce less than on the than on than on the larger operations. There's a there's a term for that. They are regressive taxes. 
Well, it's interesting. Usually when we talk about regressive taxes, we sort of are talking about taxes, taxes being regressive on, on the consumers. In this case, the beer tax is definitely regressive on the consumers as well. And so when we sort of look at the impact of this, we are sort of looking both at the consumers and on the businesses. So I want you just to, to kind of tell me more about like the bigger picture of all of this, because there's the, the very bare bones reality that's like the taxes are going to go up on, on small businesses this is going to be passed on to, to customers and it's a regressive tax because it is an excise tax. But it, it's kind of important to put into context the kind of businesses we're working with. And I hinted at that um, just earlier. Can you kind of describe to me why this tax is going to have such a negative effect on, on small businesses and um, particularly people who are, are, are less wealthy? Well, let's just let's just actually sort of talk about the impact impact of what's going on in this industry, the brewery industry. The brewery industry has shown incredible job growth since 2007. It's actually been the fastest growing manufacturing industry. And part of that actually is because of the cut in excise taxes that came in 2017 from the from the uh, Tax Cut and Jobs Act. And, you know, in, in, in this day and age, having a manufacturing industry that is growing quickly is really important. Okay, because so much manufacturing has been hit hard. In particular, this uh, this industry, the brewery industry, has been producing a lot of jobs in the center of the country, sort of what we call the blue wall states, states like Wisconsin and and Michigan and uh, and Minnesota, and um, and so that's actually really important as well. These are places that have been left behind by a lot of the tech driven growth, and the cut in the excise tax on beers has helped produce jobs in these states. Now, the question is, if you allow that tax cut to expire, it's actually hitting at people who were who have been hurt by other forces going on in the economy. And that's just not a good thing. Especially now of all times. Like I think even in a non-pandemic time, it would not be advantageous to let this tax cut expire. But like now of all times is, is the worst possible scenario. Well, it's, re- it's, really, it's really interesting, Colin, okay? Because you know, there's always a balancing act between raising revenue and creating jobs. And, you know, what the pandemic did was it created enormous deficits on the federal government. So there's this temptation to let it expire, let the tax, let the excise tax reduction expire and um, uh, raise some revenue and not worry so much about the jobs. But as you said, to say, at this moment in time with this fast growing industry producing really necessary manufacturing jobs in the center of the country, which, which kind of gets to the base of the, of, the, of the Democratic Party and gets to the people who are, who are sort of, you know, in some sense, kind of trying to figure out which way they want to go politically at this point. We, they've been left behind by some of the changes that have gone on in the economy. This is a tax cut that actually helped them. Why take that back at this point? Let's say though I'm like re- I'm really concerned about um, the deficit. I'm really concerned about the revenue that um, Congress is bringing in. Are there any ways that Congress could fill this gap um, being left by such a tax cut? Well, look, you have to you have to sort of realize that you know in the in the era of the in the era of the pandemic, we're going to have at least it looks like we're going to have at least one more big stimulus package that adds to the deficit even more. We're still in, we're still in deficit, you know, we're still in deficit creating mode, de- not deficit cutting mode at this point. You know, if we're sort of thinking about, if we're thinking about a world in which the US government can borrow at a, rel- a very low interest rate, 
if you're going to take on debt, this is the time to do it, to worry more about jobs and less about the exact amount of money that we're sort of raising. Okay. You know, and then you sort of look at the use of excise taxes to raise revenue. Excise taxes are one of the least efficient ways of raising revenue because they're very focused. They create the most distortion in the markets. Okay. Economists know that the best taxes are the most broad-based taxes, whether they're income taxes or broad-based sales taxes or a carbon tax. Okay. Um, and these narrow taxes are, are actually very, you know, in terms of bang for the buck or sort of create more harm than the broader based taxes. And, you know, when we're sort of looking at the, at the political economy of taxes, in some ways it's easier to raise taxes that have a very narrow incidence because what happens is that there's fewer people that fight back against it. You sort of say, okay, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll let the excise tax on, on beer go up. Maybe it's just going to affect this sort of small group of companies, a small group of workers. But the distortions in the economy that this creates is much bigger than, this, than the same amount of revenue raised by a broader base tax. There's a very like obvious point there, which is just like, if you tax more people, it requires you to tax each individual person less. But with very narrow taxes, it requires you to tax a much smaller group of people far more. That's exactly right. For the same amount, for the same amount of money, you're actually sort of distorting the price that people face more. If we're going to sort of talk about talk about wonkiness at this point, the 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 inefficiencies that we create by the narrower taxes are greater than by the broader taxes. But you know, there's a, there's a related point as well, which is that. Uh, you know, politicians have grown used to sort of nickel and diming people, not just with sort of narrow taxes, but with fees and fines and uh, things that they can extract, you know, a few dollars from people at a time. And that just drives people crazy, okay? Rather than taking a bigger bite and sort of say, okay, we're going we're gonna to accept the fact that we need more money and raise a broader tax that does it more efficiently. For, for people who maybe are unaware, can you explain at like a Econ 101 level what an excise tax is? And like specifically in this case, what the tax on, on beer and um, distilleries is? Well, an excise tax is a tax on a particular item. So you've got excise taxes, you know, you've got excise taxes on telephone service, you know, you've got excise taxes on alcohol. You might have an excise tax on hotels in some, in some cities that have a lot of tourism. And what happens is you put that tax on a particular item, it gets added on, and it can have a very large effect on what the on what the um, on what the final price of the good or service is to the to the consumer. In part because it's so focused on one item. You know, actually, the excise tax that everybody has to pay is the excise tax on gasoline, right? And so, to, and so, what you know, historically, excise taxes get passed on are generally viewed as regressive in the sense that they affect people with lower income more because they end up paying a larger share of their income in the, in the tax. And that's certainly the case of the, of the beer tax. The excise tax on beers is that it raises the relative price of, uh, for, the, uh, for lower income consumers more and actually uh, so the incidence of the tax falls more heavily on the lower income buyers. And that's just not a good thing you know, for a tax to be regressive. Well, like, I guess one pushback on, on specifically excise taxes on alcohol is like, if I'm concerned about the externalities of, of alcohol consumption, 
wouldn't a excise tax um, marginally disincentivize alcohol consumption? Well, I mean, so you, you end up with a situation where people sort of have multiple motivations. They sort of talk about that they're putting on the tax because they're, they want to disincentivize alcohol consumption, but really they want to raise revenue. Okay. <laughs> and, and so, you know, the, 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 the taxes, you look around the set of excise taxes and you sort of say, well, why are we have excise taxes on gasoline? Because gasoline is, we're using this to pay for the highway fund. Okay, why do we have excise taxes on hotel hotel rooms? Well, we're, we're not trying to disincentivize hotel rooms. What we're trying to do is we're trying to raise revenues. So, you know, people should kind of be honest about these things. I think there, is, there isn't any, you know, uh, you know, we, we don't, we shouldn't be using the tax system, okay, to sort of enforce certain views on people about, what they should or shouldn't be doing, you should be kind of doing that more directly. So, I mean, like this is something that you kind of talk about with a, with a carbon tax. I feel like when, pe when people think about the gasoline tax, um, they're not thinking about it as a agreed measure that like, oh, if we do a, a gasoline tax, it's gonna reduce the amount of gasoline consumption, it'll be good for the environment. Governments are pretty overt about the fact that like, hey, we do the gasoline tax because we wanna repair our highways. The, the carbon tax on the other hand is, is a bit different in which the, the overt goal from that is like, we want to reduce the amount of carbon emissions. Yeah, I, think you raise a, I think you raise a really good question. In that case, what's happening is you are actually, carbon tax is actually a much broader tax than the gasoline tax, okay? And so it's actually a much more efficient way of raise, of, of disincentivizing certain types of behavior across a wide range of, of items. And that's why it's a, that's why it's, a better tax both for raising revenue and also for achieving other goals. Okay. Narrow taxes are just a real problem okay, in, the, in the economy. So, so what you're saying basically then is the people who are claiming that excise taxes on alcohol account for externalities are, are, are basically finding an excuse for, for their, their tax when it's really just a revenue question. And if you actually did care about the externalities of alcohol consumption, you would be using other mechanisms or other policies to accomplish that. So, 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 the, so, the, so, the, so the question there is, do you sort of sit down and sort of say, we're going to use our tax system for behavioral reasons? And this gets back to the point that I was making earlier, is that tax, tax systems basically should be about raising revenue. Right? If you care about other things, you should have debates about other things rather than sort of ramming it all together. And part of the reason why we have a distrust of our tax system at this point is because we've used it for a, for a bunch of different, for a bunch of different purposes. Let's, let, at least, let me actually jump a little bit to, to parking fines, okay? You, you say, well, you know, we're gonna use parking fines to disincentivize people staying too long in their parking space, but really we're using them to raise revenue, okay? <laughs> and certainly in places like Washington, D.C. And you know what happens is that the fees and the fines get raised so much that they really end up, you know, being a source of revenue rather than disincentivizing the behaviors you don't want. So I, I guess what my question is is like, if you are concerned about something like parking, people staying too long in their parking spot, or the externalities of alcohol consumption, what would be the programs you put in place in lieu of? excise taxes. Well, you wouldn't have the you wouldn't have necessarily the parking fees up as high as they are. Okay? Sort of having sort of giving or or you know, giving people 
if you take a take a look, I mean, I know we're sort of gotten off the track a bit, but actually in terms of the political economy of sort of these types of taxes, they actually have a certain similarity to the political economy of fees and fines. And if you remember back a few years ago, you know, there were sort of some some towns in um, in the Midwest, which had, which ended up raising a lot of their revenue through parking fees and fines on people, and they made them really punitive. And yeah, they could make certain arguments, but at the end of the day, these were revenue-raising measures. And it goes a long way to um, reducing people's faith in their government. And part of what we care about is uh, aligning, you know, aligning um, what you do with taxes with what we, with what we, and fees and fines with what we care about. And so you go back to the alcohol one and you say, say is there a direct connection between, you know, you know, optimality, right, of what the correct rate of tax is? And no, the government doesn't sit down and calculate that. They just sort of sit and pick a number that gives them revenue. And in this case, what we saw here is that the reduction in the excise tax actually helped propel a very positive result in terms of growth of um, uh, uh, jobs uh, in, in this industry and making it the fastest growing manufacturing industry, which is, you know, which is a plus for itself, given the amount of jobs that have been lost. Yeah, my, like, I, I feel like we, we basically agree on this issue. But the reason I bring this up is like, I, I look at our audience of people on the left. And these are the things that they bring up when you, you bring up things like excise taxes. And it always always seemed like an excuse more so than a real reason to put these in place. It's if you want, if you want to sit down and you want to sort of do the full calculation, including both the jobs and whatever you think the externalities are, you can do that. That's not what the government does. That's not what the legislatures do. They pick an amount that generates revenue for them. And without calculating in all this, all the sets, I guess, I guess the place where I'm coming from is that I'd like to have the simplest tax system possible that raises the amount of revenue that's needed. And I'd like to have a tax system that's progressive rather than regressive. And I'd like to have a tax system that actually doesn't go ahead and punish people who are having a good time. And excise taxes go against all of that. Well, some of the excise taxes do. If they look back, you look back and you sort of say there's, there's kind of historical reasons why they were in place. These are not things that were sort of introduced in an economically rational way. Um, and, you know, and the truth is I sort of rather that these uh, reductions in the, in, the, in the excise taxes not just be renewed, but sort of made permanent. It's good for equity. It's good for efficiency. And as an economist, I've sort of sworn a vow that things work better, good for both efficiency and equity, I have to be in favor of. <laughs> I think that is a perfect way to end this. Um, Michael, thank you so much for, for explaining the intricacies of excise taxes, especially excise taxes on, on beer and other alcohol to us. Um, and I'm sure, uh, just like I, I said to Adam, that we'll, we'll have another excuse to bring you on in the near future to talk about some other wonky tax proposal or something else that Congress is cooking up. Well, thanks very much, Colin.